This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and you're listening to a very special limited series of six episodes called the Conservation Roundtable, where we take a deep dive into conservation news from around the world. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Modern Huntsman. I am the conservation editor on that publication, and you can read more on www.modernhuntsman.com. And welcome back, everybody, to another week of this, what has been already a really exciting and insightful three-way conversation covering interesting topics from around the world. Uh, We are in week three. Uh, Jess, back on the show, and Ford back on the show. Glad Um, to be here. Just really give us the, the 30 conversations. Yeah. <laughs> give us the 30 second rundown as an intro, just in case people are jumping in in episode three. Uh, I'm Jess Johnson. I'm the Wyoming Wildlife Federation Government Affairs Director, uh, which is sort of a glorified lobbyist, uh, as well as a co founder of Artemis Sportswomen and a board member of 2% for Conservation. And Ford? Ford Van Fossen, uh, conservation and content manager for First Light Hunting Apparel. Okay, so today we are, I'm going to be talking about do fish feel pain? We have um, a climbing conflicts story from Jess, and uh, Ford's already getting very excited about talking about wild horses. In fact, so excited that I'm worried that he won't be able to hold back. So I think maybe you should go. I know you went first last time, but I think you should just go first again because I feel like you need to for it. It's a little just a, like yeah, was, pent up energy talking about wild horses. So. I was imagining a trajectory whereby I was like, oh, you're t- climbing. Well, that reminds me of a story <laughs> wild horses about horses. So um, wild horses, Ford, what is your story this week? Well, From Science Mag, actually, I noticed. Yeah, well, I was I was actually hitting up the Wildlife Society. Like that's sort of a guilty pleasure nerd out. I'll go to their website and see. There's nothing guilty about that. Well, for context, uh, we've discussed this in the previous weeks, but I uh, was hell bound hell bound on being a wildlife researcher professionally. Majored in that in college. Did my thesis on black bear ecology. Um, and worked on invasive species removal and whitetail deer ecology after college for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the University of Delaware. So long story short, though I now technically work in the hunting apparel industry, I try to get my wildlife nerdery in as much as possible. Good. I'm pleased you do because now you get to share it with everybody. (laughs) And that brings me to horses. Now, (laughs) horses of the um, wild variety in the American West are extremely controversial. As you can tell, I sort of have an axe to grind about them. But I can hear the sparks flying. You know, I actually bring this story forward because I think it's a little antithetical to that dynamic in my own head. And that is essentially this idea of wild horses and burrows uh, being an ecosystem engineer. Um, And essentially this study... In a positive manner or negative? Exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. So this study documented uh, horses and burrows. I, I, I actually don't recall if it was horses and burrows or burrows or... Either way, wild equids that are non-native, although that's even a controversial statement now that I say it out loud, um, that were not present at the time of colonization. I'll be explicit. Um, Making essentially watering holes in arid regions of the American West um, 
that are then used by a suite of other animals um, after they've been dug out, essentially. So I love it, this idea of like, you know, maybe all issues aside, the fact that like maybe there is a the place in in a way for these animals to be on this landscape that is less than just horribly damaging, which I know a lot of the controversy is around. Because that's all yeah. I ever hear or read Absolutely. is how bad they are for the landscape. And um, I don't think those changes my mind in the slightest, <laughs> to be truthful. Um, however, it is, you know, it, it is it is always interesting and important to challenge, you know, sort of your own preconceptions, right, uh, when it comes to everything in life, but particularly wildlife management. Yeah. So here we have horses, you know, to some degree creating little I want to almost use the term guzzler uh, because that's a pre, you know, that's a fixation for us when it comes to wildlife management in the West often. But these horses are creating these little water holes that are being used by a ton of wildlife and and water, you know, as we know, in a lot of the West is is life. Uh, And so, you know, arguably, perhaps they're extending the amount of species that can given that can exist in a given in a given area by creating these water sources. I, I think but one it, thing I'd if, love... If there were less horses, would there not be more water? <laughs> <laughs> we got, I've got devil's advocate on devil's advocate. Here yeah, I know, because I'm just thinking, like, so my mind goes to, well, obviously they're drinking water, so there's a, there's a direct resource use there, but their actual impact on the landscape, compacting the soil, reducing the amount of, um, well, and... Imp- Impacting the soil with their hooves, but also the grazing pressures means that the land is not retaining as much water as it used to. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I get it and down, I think it's interesting, but yeah. It seems like when you graze down the cover, you know, a lot of like when you look in sagebrush flatlands, like what sagebrush gives is, you know, when you have the snow and then the snow starts to melt, the snow stays in the sagebrush shadows longer and it actually sort of it helps the landscape absorb more water especially in really arid landscapes yeah. um and so when you graze that down or you get rid of it because of impaction and everything else and and you know it that's an interesting sort of devil's advocate on devil's advocate the other thing i <laughs> the thing i really love about this I, I open this and i'm sort of reading this first little uh the abstract of it and and i love that these scientists are referring to them as feral equids and <laughs> it's it's the major it's the major thing of like, even this goes to a thing of like how we communicate conservation language. Um, you know, when we talk about wild horses and burrows, wild implies a, a much more, you know, wildlife sort of viewing positive, and positive <laughs> emotion around it. And I've been very team calling them fi- feral horses or I like feral equids because it brings in uh, burrows as well. Oh yeah. I would agree, Jess. A, a wild horse is running across a red rock mesa as the sun is setting behind it. Yeah, a feral horse is like looks kind of like a stray cat and is sort of nibbling <laughs> cheat grass behind a, chewing behind on the last a... sagebrush stick that's coming out and just kind of yeah. I mean, and it's Very it's horrifying because it's. I mean, the other side of it is like I'm I'm a horse gal. I've grown up with horses. I could ride before I could walk. I love horses, so I come from this place of looking out at this landscape, but I'm also 
you know, someone who's who's very deep believer in in wildlife and ecosystems that are balanced and uh, well structured, and the the absolute blanket protection of wild horse and burrows have been so detrimental to like the native wildlife in a lot of these places because and it's not just because like you know whether horses are native or non-native isn't the question the the question is is that they are not managed um or not managed well because they have so many restrictions on them and they're so detrimental um that we haven't found a balance that's been good and is the balance eating them jess I yeah. <laughs> I'm We're eating so glad. some of them. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think we've, uh, and this goes again to like how we've stigmatized food in in America, and you know, I, and more countries in the world eat dog than eat cow. Like it's we have. Oh, hold on a second. Is that true? More yes. countries. More countries in the world eat dog than cow, and more people in the world about that eat dog than cow. But and yet, that's like for most of us, that seems like disgusting because we're thinking of our dog. Our that Western we probably cultures most of us have a dog. Are so squeamish with meat. I mean, even like as hunters, you know, people that won't eat venison or, you know, or bear meat or things like that. Where there's like we are so squeamish with meat. We've lost fully our connection to food. And, you know, you enter on top of that emotion like dog or horse because they are our pets. And, you know, there are Disney movies and there's our, you know, we see ourselves in them and, and all of that. But, um, you know, what I can tell you right now is what we're doing with feral horses and feral equids is not working. It is not working. It's getting worse, uh, and it's worse on them emotionally because what we are doing is rounding them up and putting them in dirt pastures. Yeah, hugely and stressful. Then, not and just paying hugely. unfathomable amounts of money to Un- keep them alive. But but it's barely kept alive because you see them, and you know if anybody's raised horses, you know that you can have maybe two or three horses on a couple acres, and in a couple years, that couple acres turns into a dirt farm because horses are hard on on landscape. So we're putting hundreds of horses into small paddocks and they're dirt farms. They never get to be free. They're born quote unquote wild. And, and you can't tell me that that's a better life than just having a quick death. Um, in one way or I'll take, I'll take, I'll take the being on someone's plate. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. And, and so at least a quick and honest, you know, quick death that can get you not suffering for long periods of time uh, fixes the sort of ethic side of it, but it also fixes maybe the food side of it because I've had horse before. It's not bad. I've meat. had horse it's, before in France. It's good. It's great. Um, they look real tasty. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> For just, how do you like your horse? Medium rare? I mean, I just, whenever I see the rear quarter of a horse, I'm sort of like, oh, look at how big that thing is. Like, I keep think thinking about, about how I don't want to pack cut. it out, though. You know, I'm like, oh, man. Oh, it'd be heavy. Well, I'd pack it out in the back of my truck. Yeah. See, a lot of <laughs> people correct. here, they're like, they pack elk out on a horse, on horses. So there is some, like, I don't know if I'd take my horse to pack out a horse packing a horse, out. Packing <laughs> a horse out on a horse yeah, yeah there's probably. something there that feels weird but it i do think it's a it's a discussion worth having and you know what i can say now is we're, we've tried birth control which is just you have to do every year and is heinously expensive we've round them up and put them in pastures but nobody's adopting horses fast enough or cares enough to do anything with them once they're there um so, so it's not working <laughs> 
we haven't found a solution yet. So I don't know. I'm I'm team maybe make horses edible. <laughs> Well, I mean, they are edible. We just need to like <laughs> normalizing, normalizing, normalizing eating them. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, great, great story. And the paper was Equids Engineer Desert Water Availability in what was the publication? Science. Science Mag. Yeah, Science Mag. Uh, so thanks for sharing that, Ford. Mm-hmm. I know we could do a whole podcast on on. On, on feral horses and i have talked about them before on the show so this has given me something he- positive though the thing yeah it's the, cool they it, it is it's interesting yeah. yeah i think that's Good important job. when you're having majorly controversial discussions especially with people that disagree with you is to be able to see like that maybe there is some compromise in here and maybe there is some benefit like ecosystem services and like benefit of it oh yeah well jess i liked your argument just now about the the perhaps positive ethical implications of of euthanizing horses i hadn't actually i just tend to be curmudgeonly and think about all the taxpayer dollars going to basically keep horses alive on random corral you know in random corrals in missouri or wherever they are well we but we have a, that, a horse sanctuary quote unquote here outside of lander and it's uh it's hard to look at it and i mean you know the people are doing the best that they can to make these animals' lives good. But this, the fact of the matter is you can't put 300 animals on a landscape in a small area, no matter where you put them, and have them, like, have a good life. Yeah. No, I think that's a really valid argument that probably needs to be talked about more in this debate. Yeah. Well, talking about how we treat animals, uh, my story is about do fish feel pain? Now, it's interesting how this came about because... The original story that I read was actually a response from a doctor, Dr. Lynn Snedden, who was responding to another letter that had been written in the paper, which had been a response to an original article. So if I start to the beginning, the original article was actually about farmed fish and talking about how we treat seafood in particular from a welfare standpoint, because we have very different welfare standards for basically any basically anything else that isn't on land, um, and sh- is that reasonable? Is it have we not considered what the implications of our actions are on all of these species that we consume that live below the waterline? And the the original article was was saying that if you look at something like fish farms, is what they were particularly picking up on the agriculture uh, agriculture industry, which, get this for a number, the global aquaculture industry is worth 182 billion pounds. That's $250 billion. Whew. It's a lot of money. That's a lot but of dollars. They have been really criticized recently. We've seen this here in Scotland. Actually, it's a friend of mine, Corin Smith, who's been on the podcast before, who's actually exposed a lot of this on the fish farms. Is that a lot of these fish are living in really horrendous conditions, you know, packed mm-hmm. at densities which are insanely high, like far beyond 
any kind of density that you would find either in the wild or so anything that would be acceptable on land if people could see it. And the uh, disease and fungus and like the actual physical state of these animals, if you were to look at them underwater, if you look at some of the underwater footage that's been obtained from the fish farms, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got open lesions and they're full of sea lice and it's just, it's hard. You would never want to eat it if you saw what it looked like. Uh, like that. You'd probably never eat it again if you took the time to go and look at that. But it's not just salmon. They were talking about uh, rainbow trout and um, other fish species that are, uh, well, I mean, obviously rainbow trout are, f- are freshwater, but there's a lot of freshwater species that, that are grown in fish farms as well. Oh, yeah. When we talk That's... about fish farms here in the UK, we're normally thinking about salmon. Um, but then mm-hmm. you've got also um, you know, lobsters, crabs, you know, these are animals that we put in pots of boiling water alive. It like, really oh, changes yeah. the, uh, <laughs> I mean, aside from the, the you know, food aspect of fishing, this really puts the catch and release mentality as being the ethical one. Yeah, well, I, exactly, oh, that's right? That's definitely the most troubling element it is. In, my, in my book as, as a, as a, recreational catch and fit catch and release fishermen mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a it's a really big question and you know this so this article was raising the the welfare um question and what science exists about how do we understand how these animals feel pain um and it, i mean it went further and said you know there are some animals in terms of intelligence like an octopus the maybe we shouldn't be farming at all like do they have an intelligence level that is beyond what is morally and ethically acceptable to farm Uh, are we farming octopus just as a side note um i'm not sure if we are but it's not the first time i've seen this brought up but we Mm. definitely harvest them out of the sea and oh yeah um they are quite tasty (laughs) i know i like eating them as well (laughs) So there was a letter written into this. Um, so I should probably uh, just finish off the article, but just by reading this quote before I get to the letter, which was that uh, these animals are sentient beings um, and that they are capable of experiencing pain, fear, stress, and yet we farm them in conditions that are not uh, would not be acceptable for mammals or birds, which is basically what I just said. And so um, there was a letter written in... Uh, to respond as a response to this by Professor Alan Roberts, who's basically saying that yes, uh, we have there is scientific scientific evidence looking at hormones and, and stress markers to try and work out are animals responding to to pain and and to the stress of pain. Which, I mean, I, I would suggest that even if you're not a scientist and you can't actually go and look at hormone levels it's pretty obvious that everything is responding to pain because we need that to survive. The fact that we don't want to have pain and damage to our bodies is what allows us to to avoid that in the first place, What whatever animal that is. It's kind um, of mind-boggling and- that we need to ask ourselves the question, like, do they feel pain for us to <laughs> want to treat an animal ethically? And like, I, like it's just mind-boggling to me that we've gotten to the point where we've removed ourselves so far from the kingdom animalia to go... Like, well, if they don't feel pain, does that change how I'm going to treat an animal? And how are you going to treat them? I feel like that's, that's kind of really, sick. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, his 
So Professor Alan Roberts' point was, yes, we know that they respond. Obviously, they feel there there is a, a measure response to pain, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are responding to the pain like we perceive pain. Now, and I was actually having this conversation with my dad um, today, just before doing this podcast. He keeps racing pigeons. And I have, over the years since being a kid, from time to time, him and I have put racing pigeons back together that have been like hit by a sparrowhawk or a, a peregrine falcon, where they've had their chest like ripped open, the most horrendous wound that you can possibly imagine. Like if that had been the equivalent wound on a human, well, first of all, you'd probably be dead. Um, but secondly, <laughs> there's no way you'd be conscious. You would be passed out and you could, would never be able to take that pain. Impossible. And I mean, obviously I have no, I don't know what the bird is feeling, but I know how the bird is reacting to us, you know, working on it to to fix it and make it healthy again. And I can't see how it is perceiving pain in the same way that we perceive pain. And so his point was, yes, we absolutely need improved welfare conditions for, he was specifically talking about seafood uh, and all seafood, but don't confuse how we are um, translating the pain of animals into this anthropomorphized reaction to pain because it is different. And then (laughs) there was another letter in response to that letter, actually by someone who had been quoted in the original article. So this was by Dr. Lynn Snedden, and that was the quote that I read at the end. And she had kind of a rebuttal to it, basically just saying that there's a lot of evidence um, to suggest that uh, fish and rainbow trout in particular, she quotes a study in 2002, uh, feel feel pain, and um, she talks about the physiology and neurobiology and molecular biology, and how this is um, basically all being measured, and they feel pain to a point where we need to, you know, we need to consider that, and we need to consider them um, sentient beings, and this is really interesting because we have just passed, or they are just about to pass legislation here in the UK that is going to consider. Um, animals as sentient beings, uh, which had a bit of an uproar, but actually, from what I could tell when I dug into it today, not a lot is actually going to change because previously, very similar wording was used under rulings from the European Union, of which we now came out. So it was kind of just replacing that legislation that Mm -hmm. we used to sit under under the EU. So I think possibly more was made out of that than is really going to make a difference. But it's interesting to think about it in that terms. I don't like, like I would argue that we... it's important to think about, you know, and looking at how, I, I mean, it's been a, my continual maybe grumble with the hunting community, not looking at these animals as, as part of this place and, and as something to be conquered or whatever. And it's, it's, uh, I think when you reframe how we look at, you know, animals, wildlife, food, fish, whatever they fall into, I think it's incredibly important that we accept that they, you know, maybe they feel pain differently than us. Maybe, you know, it's never going to be our same experience. They are not humans. We are not fish. But I think what we can recognize is that these are beings on this earth that are living a life. And uh, if we see that as something in relation to us and we recognize that 
by eating, we have an impact and, you know, we have to be like conscious of the pain we cause. And I think that that then implies the need for reciprocity. So, you know, if we're going to eat this and we're going to do this and we're going to catch this, then we have to, one, uh, put our best foot forward in the sense of like, if, if we're catching and releasing fish, we do it in a way you know, maybe it's barbless hooks or whatever it is um, in that sense, minimizing our impact. And then we go out and we make sure that we protect their habitat that they're in. And we, you know, do tenfold what we have received from that fish and that earth. So thinking like the reciprocity relationship of being like, okay, if you're going to go hunt something or, you know, if I eat beef or if I do this, then my reciprocity is an obligation, you know, to that animal. Um, And it's just being, I think it's, not necessarily being completely against causing an animal pain. It's understanding that to exist is to, you know, flesh eats flesh, whether you're a vegetarian or not, you have an impact. And it's to understand what your impact is to like, like really look it in the face, see it for what it is, and then do something as a reciprocity relationship against that impact. Yeah. It's you make. Yeah. Perfect. Jess. And I'm sort of doing, you're, ahead, you're giving thumbs up. You're doing like a big thumbs up and shaking your head. Well done, Jess. <laughs> yeah. And, well, you know, yeah. Because the thing is, the thing is, it's, you know, I agree with, I, I agree with everything that you said. And we do need to think more about how we are impacting wildlife. How, how are we affecting them beyond just the reduction of, of populations? Because we are changing behaviors of animals by the way that we reshape the landscape and the way that we treat them. Um, But equally, you're right, Jess. Like, we live and share this landscape with animals. So in the world, outside of the world that we've constructed as humans, animals require other animals to survive. And yeah, they are causing them some pain to do that. You know, the lion isn't worrying about the pain it causes the zebra. Oh, um, or the lion pain. The octopus <laughs> yeah. is not worrying about the pain that it causes the fish when it goes to catch the fish. Um, we can think about that stuff, and we should be concerned about it. But I think that there is, you know, there is a line there somewhere where we should be concerned about it because we need to care about animal welfare because we are in we are the species that is in control of how we treat other animals but we can't go so far as to oh well actually because pay, fish feel pain we shouldn't eat any fish anymore you know like take the sea spiracy approach where their solution is like just not to eat fish because um we we can't sustainably harvest it because they picked some examples that weren't sustainable or you know we shouldn't eat uh, we shouldn't eat um, any um, farmed meat anymore because s- some farmed animals live in shit conditions. It's there is balance a balance in, in all of this. Yeah, well, and, I mean, is. it's the same thing of like the world's problems wouldn't be solved if suddenly everybody ate vegan. In fact, it would be a lot worse. Because you look at the level of don't habitat. tell don't you're ruining people's illusions here. Jeff. I know. I, you look at the level of habitat fragmentation. That happens when you're cultivating large, whether it's, you know, uh, kale fields or 
tofu, soybean, all this kind of stuff. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the rolling tofu fields. The rolling tofu. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the good stuff. <laughs> uh, but you look at the level of habitat impact, and, and I would argue that, you know, they're just existing takes resources. You can't not be impactful. Um, but you, you can choose where that impact is and how intimate you are with your own impact. And, you know, I myself choose, you know, to hunt and to be with a sort of zero level of separation between what I'm eating and my plate. Uh, and, the, you know, like, I, but I do think like, that doesn't mean everybody should do it that way. It just means that like, we have to be cognizant. There's not one way better than others. It's, balance and 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 that balance is what's important and that's that's where you know nature loves balance in that sense um and so we can't just get rid of eating fish or get rid of eating cow or things like that but we can approach it in a balanced way that is beneficial and and looking at at things like do fish feel pain or you know how the the living conditions of cattle or you know on down the line, um, as well as like, we also need the people that don't eat meat. Um, but they need to understand that, you know, plowing up and monoculturing fields removes habitat of a multitude of different species. Some are not as charismatic as others, but you've just removed the houses and effectively killed a species off in that area as if you had gone out and hunted it. So it's, it's one of the biggest land use changes in the world and the number one impact on biodiversity loss is land use change and monocultures. And yeah, so it's, there's just, yeah. it's balance. It's it's not saying anybody's doing it perfectly, but it's saying that we could all do better. Yeah. I, I, got, the, I, uh, I got nothing more to add, Jess. You like summed that up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think though that, I think that the catch and release thing is sort of a whole different article. Yeah, it is. Be. It is. And I was going to, I wasn't sure whether I was going to get into that or not, but oh, I mean, you, you, it's, it's, I mean, I think about it, and I have thought about I it more in recent times. Yeah, I like do I, too, I don't, in some regards, yanking the trout out of the river and bonking it, I think is actually... I got no problem with that. ...quite a bit more, I don't want to say ethically defensible, but it's certainly ethically straightforward, right? Well, and it's, and, yeah, fish to plate, river fish plate, you know? Well, and I think it's the equivalent of me walking out the door and shooting an elk with with my 308 right i mean i think that is the same action we yeah, are we're eating other organisms in order to survive i think if you if you do not subscribe to sort of a buddhist you know we are beyond eating other sentient animals mentality then i think that's perfectly in line what is i think more problematic is going out standing on a river Grabbing a fish by its face, reeling it to you, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then letting a look it go. At it. Yeah. Even even if you're good and you know you keep it in the water and you're using a barbless fly and this that and the other, I mean, really, I just I yank the thing towards me in the river. I grab it by the tail, perhaps, and look at it and say, "Oh, that's nice." And then that's I put nice it back in the water. <laughs> that yeah, is it's, something it's I challenge, do right? weekly during the summer. It's um, a real challenge. Um, yeah. Do you and know I what don't... bothers me the most, though? Is the number of fisher people who haven't thought about it. Yeah. Like, when yeah. you bring it up to them, they're like, they have no answer to it because they've never considered, am I doing something that is is cruel? Like, And why am I doing it? 
And it, it's a difficult one because when I think about, you know, when, when you're fishing, you'll catch a lot of fish which are undersized, which are which mm-hmm. are young, and you'd never keep it because you wouldn't be able to eat them. Obviously, you stick them back. They're, they're kind of a bycatch. They're never really the intention. And I always kind of justify catch and release on the basis that you need people to care about river systems. You need people to care about the biodiversity right. in those watersheds. And I challenge you to find anybody that cares about fish in rivers more than people who fish for them. And the case in point to that is- People that care about that that are not fishermen or women. <clears throat> well, ex- exactly. Because the vast majority of biologists that I meet on the rivers here in all the fisheries trusts up and down the country, most of them fish. <laughs> it's oh, not yeah. a coincidence. And so if the if the cost of admission for conservation work to maintain and improve those habitats and keep fish in the rivers is that is catch and release and the level of pain that the fish goes through maybe that's worth it but then i think about well would we we be okay riding out into the hills on horseback and just i don't know lassoing elk just for shits and giggles so that you could wrestle them to the ground and let them go again I mean, probably that's not. A very intriguing. <laughs> uh, well. it's a very intriguing. I mean, I'd try it. <laughs> Would it yeah. be okay? Probably not. But well, yeah. it's not actually a completely ridiculous scenario. Fox hunting without the dispatching of the fox exists, right? Um, or it used well, to. Well, no. So the way that the rules changed was that you weren't allowed to kill foxes with the dogs that you were hunting them with. So you had to push the fox to standing guns. Uh, So the fox hunting, in inverted commas, that exists without killing a fox is actually on trails. So it's you run a a scent trail and you run the hounds on it just to have the excitement of running hounds. So you don't like put the fox back in a doggy carrier and like use him for the next one. No, no, (laughs) no. The 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 fox dies if you can if you can end up shooting it. But yeah, the the thing that changed was that. So the 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 reason that that came in is because they felt that it was cruel and wasn't uh, morally right and ethical for a pack of dogs to tear apart a fox. But we have no problems controlling foxes as a vermin species at night with a lamp or thermal or night vision or during you know or during the day and shooting them. We have I think most people don't really have a a big problem with that. Uh, but they do have a problem and there's a class issue there as well, but they do have a problem with running a fox down with a pack of dogs and letting the dogs kill it. Like mm. a pack of wolves would kill a bison. Oh yeah, and and I like I do understand it. I, I understand the sort of the graphic nature of it and the perceived extra stress that an animal like that is going under. But I think also in the grand scheme of how nature functions, it's actually a very natural thing. Yeah, yeah. Certainly. I, I think but it I doesn't think... make it. Yeah, I mean it's. But I think Nature you're getting at the cruel. same question, right? Yeah. Is is our humans somehow morally above nature? Um, well, we think we are. I, I was we, like, we certainly yeah. do. Another element. Sure our language, world. really, at least in this culture, certainly precedes that. <laughs> right, but I, I do think that that comes back to that same fundamental question. I mean, I was watching uh, 
I, I'm sure you two are familiar with uh, Nature's Metal. Oh yeah, yes. Um, I was watching <laughs> one recently. A group of uh, painted dogs or cape hunting dogs or whatever you want to call them—a wild African canid, kind of a calico coloring—was uh, dispatching a bush buck, and it was brutal. I mean, I've it's seen like, that. Yeah. Oh, it's like a four, I don't know, five, six, seven minute video. And they sort of wear the thing down. And then in sort of a horrifyingly undramatic way, just begin eating it from the rear side. From the rear as end. As the yeah. bush buck is looking at them, basically. Yeah, it gives up eventually. Yeah. And at one point, like you see a dog pulls out a string of intestine as the bush buck is gazing at the dog. It's like, wow. I mean, that's My, nature. My 308 is a lot better than that when it comes to a death in nature. Yeah. Well, I, I'll. Uh, we're going to get on to Jess's story, but I'll just tell you one last anecdote in this. I was with, I'm just going back there just soon, actually, to go and finish a film that I started in 2019, um, looking at an elephant relocation to the Congo. But the the person that I was there with in Namibia, where the elephants came from, is a woman called Annette Olofsson, who I've written an article about in Modern Huntsman, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was with her on like day two last in 2019 of me being there for three months. And we're driving in her truck, and we see this young kudu cow lying, kind of like flailing, just off the side of the track, and it was clearly very sick. And uh, she's, she doesn't say much, and I'm filming. She gets out, walks over, which is like 20, 30 meters away, and I fil I'm filming all this, because I don't really know what's going on. Loads her revolver, which is on her all the time, walks over, you can hear her, she's mic'd up actually, so you can hear her like talking to this, this young juvenile kudu, and you know, puts a bullet in its head. Walks back to the truck, gets in, unloads a revolver, and we drive off and we start talking, and she's like, I always tell people nature isn't always beautiful. And, you know, that's the far kinder thing. You know, what would have happened if she hadn't been there? Well, nature would have just done its thing. It might have lived, I don't know, another half a day, another day. Who knows? Maybe something would have eaten it alive you know, during the night. Um, but that's nature. That's yeah. the nature without humans being there. Uh, yeah, it so moves to Hollywood Jess. goggles. <laughs> Jess. Yeah. Actually, I have a very great sort of transition into this because when we were talking about like catch and release fishermen and you're, you're talking about like, you know, is, is the sort of entry into this and the fact that we have people that fish and love it and, and it turns into conservation and passion and, and research, uh, you know, is that balance, is that pros and cons list good? And, and this kind of comes on the coattails of that. And then the larger perspective of outdoor recreation and building advocates for conservation. And it's this argument, you know, I don't, I'm not talking about equity to access or anything like that in this. What I'm talking about when I talk about this is, is the fact of like, is building advocates by expanding outdoor recreation opportunities, a way that we translate uh, maybe maybe not only outdoor recreation into more dollars, but uh, into more advocates and, and does our world benefit from more people being outside in different ways. And, um, you know, I think, again, 
talking again about balance in this. This story is called Climbing Conflicts. Forest Service intervenes in Ten Sleep Canyon. And, and the basis of this story is that uh, Wyoming has some just climbing, rock climbing meccas, like places that are world renowned for the climbing quality. And Ten Sleep Canyon, Canyon is one of them. Ten Sleep is this beautiful canyon in the Bighorns. It's quite literally some of the most exceptional landscapes that Wyoming has to offer. Um, and it has these major cliffs um, that are sort of run through this canyon. And I think it was a couple decades ago. Uh, it's it's incredibly remote. It doesn't have any major population centers around it. It has a little town called Ten Sleep right at the base of this canyon, um, but it's tiny. And uh, this wall, um, these dolomite and limestone cliffs, uh, sort of became known to a small sort of cadre of climbers, sport climbers. Uh, the word got out, a guidebook was created. It just became, it boomed in popularity as we've seen rock climbing just blow up. And I, I always liken this to the fact that like, you know, what outdoor recreation is like reckoning with now. And that's things like backcountry skiing, mountain biking, kayaking, uh, rock climbing, and that kind of sort of sport and that takes wilder places to do it in. What we're seeing from them is the same growing pains that we saw from the sort of Western hunting culture that started um, as America colonized. And that idea of like people going just gangbusters for something, having no regulation around it, and almost doing it to the point of where they couldn't ever do it ever again. And so, so like going too far in, in, in hunting's history, we look at that as market hunting and, you know, almost hunting species to extinction. And then some voices spoke up and said, whoa, too much. We have to go back and look at how we do this and we have to regulate it because now too many people are doing it and there's too many people on this earth and we have to do it in a certain way. So what I'm looking at with rock climbing, especially in Wyoming, is we're seeing the same thing, this major explosion of interest. People are, it's its an economic, like, it's a revenue builder for Wyoming is the amount of tourism that comes in the state for rock climbing alone is huge. Um, Helped by recent, like, big docks like Dawnwall and Free Solo. Yes. And it's just, it's exploding. But no land management agency is ready to deal with this. There are no infrastructure around many of these places, especially in the West, because it's newer. Um, and this is climbing is still like, I, I think half of Wyoming is still going like rock climbing. Why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> um, but so, so the agencies are not prepared for this. So, you, you know, cut to 10 years ago. And they started seeing damages happening because of rock climbing in this canyon. Things like people were uh, like altering the wall that they were on from uh, sort of gluing in uh, different handholds where there weren't places, uh, human waste, like people just having no yeah, uh, People are place. disgusting. Exactly. Human waste was a major problem. What's wrong problem. with people? Illegally parking. Damn surface shitters. <laughs> 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 legally parking all is of this that like, stuff sorry. is that <laughs> is that like a, a backcountry hunting thing where does that there, term come from there's a there's a joke organization <laughs> called ass anti-surface shitters <laughs> it's so relevant to this though because it was i mean the other side of it is that 
in this canyon, it's not like there's a ton of surface to dig into as well. No. So it's, you know, so oh, that yeah. all of this problem was happening. That was 10 years ago. And the uh, land management, the Forest Service didn't have their plan going. It wasn't under review. Cut to a decade later, it's a, it's a major problem. So much so that they are actually having to go back and create the first ever climbing management plan for a area in the forest service and they're having to go and be like how do we handle this like how what are the rules and and um as we're seeing this in the west develop uh i had this ability uh just last week to go into uh new york and uh i was climbing in the gunks the schwangunk ridge of new york which is a really old climbing area um it is a private reserve and it's $20 a day. It's like, I mean, it, it's a barrier to access. So, you know, if you can't travel out of the city, if you can't afford the $20, things like that, it's that's, in, you know, but the, the way that they've chosen to deal with this is to, to charge an amount because of the amount of impact that climbers have had. The other side of this is that the gunks has a really, and this is something I really respect, maybe the antithesis of some of the issues that we have seen with climbers here in Wyoming. But but the fact that the climbers and the gunks are traditional climbers, so they're placing gear um, not permanently on the wall. It's gear that you place as you go up and then you clean as you go up. Um, and the other side of it is this sort of feeling in the old climbing world of the gunks that like not every wall has to be climbed. Not every place is conquerable. We should leave some places, um, you know, as they were. And then maybe some climbs that are really, 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 really too hard. Um, maybe a climber in the future will be able to climb them. So we shouldn't permanently bolt them. So I, uh, okay. I, it's sort of this different idea from what I was seeing in New York versus what I've witnessed here. And, and here I live in Lander, Wyoming. We have Sinks Canyon, um, 10 Sleep Canyon, where this story is written, is just four and a half hours away. It's in a place I turkey hunt a lot. Um, and the impacts are real. Uh, you know, we used to have a bighorn sheep herd in Sinks Canyon and we no longer have that because of the level of tourism. Some of that has been rock climbing. It's not just, uh, the rock climbers issue, but, but, you know, there's illegal trails that have gone in. There are places where it's elk par tuition area. It's, it's finding this balance. So while we're talking about outdoor advocates and saying we have to get more people outside, it's healthy for the human race. It's healthy for the environment. It's healthy conservation. There is the balance of saying like the other side of the argument is that there's there's too many people for everyone to do this. And we have to figure out management plans on how we do this. And and we have these balances to, you know, is it equitable? Can people afford it? Um, or is this sort of a rich man's sport? Or the other side of it is like, do we allow it in this place at all? Maybe there are some places that we can't go and we have to be okay with that. Um, so it was a really interesting thing to see that the Forest Service, a federal agency, is starting to look at having to manage this. And, you know, a, a recent other sort of conflict that's not just climbing is backcountry skiers and bighorn sheep, especially in the uh, Jackson Hole Teton area uh, of Wyoming. So think, you know, Teton National Park near Yellowstone National Park, big mountains, a really endangered bighorn sheep species is coming into conflict with backcountry skiers who are pushing further and further into winter habitat and causing stress on these animals that are already living in just insane conditions. Um, yeah. and where that balance happens and, and, you know, how we make the outdoors accessible, but 
while how also we respecting also, the outdoors. Exactly, and where that balance is, and I, I just think it's an answer we haven't found yet. And I love that we're starting to look at it, but there's an incredibly privileged attitude um, in our culture that is just like we deserve to be here and uh, like do this, but we have more impact. You know, we're not an animal with light impact. We're an animal with major impact, and we've created it more so because of technology. So, Jess, yeah, <laughs> I, this is where I have to cut in with my my personal story from that dynamic in Jackson Hole. Ooh, I'm here for that. <laughs> and your words uh, are almost paraphrasing it, really, just now. But uh, a friend of mine who will go unnamed, but is a wildlife advocate in uh, in Jackson told me the story of a public meeting in regard to backcountry skiing and bighorn sheep and, and to rehash, essentially, back backcountry skiers can sometimes stress wintering sheep populations is the very short version. Um, and that's been very controversial in the Valley and there's been a lot of discussion in public meetings. And anyhow, this guy related a story at a public meeting whereby um, a backcountry skier uh, who you do perhaps need to live in the American West or ski town to understand this persona, but he was apparently very much the stereotypical ski bro, <laughs> um, you know, sort of stood up in his ratty clothes and his, uh, you know, proverbial pit vipers and got to the lectern and started off his comment with the sheep have had their time. It's oh. our time now. Wow. Oh. What an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not indicative of all skiers, of course, in any way, shape, or form. But it did it, it did sort of embody their time. Wow. <laughs> yes, one sort of unthinking ski bro mentality, perhaps when it comes to wildlife. It's education, uh, you, you know. Is, it's you it's, can't but it's exactly uh, that. It's education. Yeah. I was looking at the climbing guides for a lot of these areas, both in Lander and Wyoming and in, uh, in New York and, and very few of them, you know, they all talk about, I mean, they do talk about surface shitting. I'll say that they do talk about that. And most of them, they also the talk about, term. you know, not cutting new trails and things like that, but not one of them that I picked up said anything about wildlife impact. And I just think that that's something that we haven't connected into the outdoor recreation community. We haven't talked about how mountain bikes run ungulates around or how, you know, backcountry skiers stress sheep or, you know, climbers can stress peregrine populations, whatever it is, like whatever it is, we're not talking about the impact in an ecosystem way. We're just sort of being like, oh, well, you know, like landscape wise, don't fuck it up. But Whoops, wildlife. <laughs> well, so much think to think about. So much we, to think about. We as hunters, too, you know, we, not that we don't have our own unintended impacts, but I think often we do think about give and take in that we have a consumptive relationship with these resources. Yeah. Right? It's because yeah. we are called consumptive users, and that's the problem. <laughs> exactly. We should never Which, be calling other outdoor recreation things non-consumptive. <laughs> Exactly. No, because there's always a use. Yeah, they just—it's just not necessarily tangible. It's mm. not necessarily the body of an elk, yeah. but it is that the stress caused by people zipping by on mountain bikes repeatedly in a place um, that causes elk to not hang out there anymore, whatever it may be. Yeah, I, there's balance. Well, I'm not saying don't rock climb. It's just balance. That's just going to be my theme for this one. <laughs> 
So who is whose turn is it to present a sound to wrap this this extended show up since we got like so deep into it? I think it's Ford. Uh, that would be mine, I believe. If, you've um, got you've got the sound Ford. Yes, I'm lift so I'm lifting my mic over here so it can pick up the YouTube, hopefully, video I'm about to play, but let me know if it doesn't quite work. I know the sound. Is it the bird sound or is it the mosquitoes? Because I definitely heard mosquitoes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I was swatting. <laughs> is it a it's primate? Sound for reference. Is it a primate? Uh, it is not a primate. Um, no. Is it an owl? Uh, no, although... That is actually something that crossed my mind when I initially heard this in life. I will give you a hint that might may or may not help you. Um, it is a sound you often hear during turkey season in the spring woods in swampier places. Yeah, that does not help me having never been. <laughs> well, but I, think, I, I actually think this animal also occurs in the United Kingdom. Oh, really? I believe so. It may be a different species specifically, but I don't think it's a whole lot different if it is. So it's a bird. It is a bird, yes. Um, is it a grouse species? And it's actually a game bird. Is it I grouse? Grouse species? Nope. Mm-mm. A game bird that's rather small and has an earthy taste. I've eaten exactly so one. So is it is it like a it's a woodcock or a snipe or something like that? I was thinking it is, snipe. It is a yeah. snipe. Yeah. Wow, I've heard that it is so a many times. Snipe. I like it. Yeah, you have to eat a lot of them to get a meal. You do. They are very small. They are tiny. Um, <laughs> we shot one once because I used to kick them up all the time in hunting the river. It's not even really a river bottom, but sort of the swampy sections along the very headwaters of the upper salmon. Antelope hunting, I would kick these things out and they kind of have a squeak, squeak alarm call. And I knew they were game birds. So I ended up convincing a buddy to go up there in October. And we did end up flushing and shooting one and somehow found it, which is rather remarkable given it's the size of a damn songbird. Um, and we ate it and it was good. It was a little earthy tasting. I've I don't know if them, I was yeah. reading into it, but now I'm it was curious. quite good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know really even I don't know if you can if dogs will point them. I don't even really know how you're supposed to properly hunt them, but the We've interesting called factoid, them into a duck setup before, actually. I have had them oh, fly really? in. Yeah. Oh. Huh. Well, the curious thing is that that noise, I suppose, from what the interwebs tell me. It's the wings, isn't it? It is not, yeah, it's a mechanical noise, if that makes Whoa. sense. It is not a call. And they're called the winnowing? winnowing? Like Exactly, it's called winnowing. Oh, I like it. Yeah. yeah I like these but, podcasts. They learn new animals. Yeah. <laughs> and with that insightful information, thank you once again for another week. Uh, we, will, we will be back next week. Thanks so much. It's been awesome. Looking forward. Looking forward.